This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is June 24th, 2021. Today, we celebrate Pride Month. It's the time of year when much of the world celebrates the progress and discusses the remaining pain points of the LGBTQ community. Companies, investors, as well as the public at large have spent a lot of time this year discussing issues around diversity, equality, and inclusion, otherwise known as DE&I. Much of that conversation, including admittedly here on Perspectives, has been around racial and gender diversity. But the struggles of LGBTQ workers to bring their authentic selves to the office and the bottom line benefits of creating a culture where they feel comfortable doing so, well, they're just as real and just as substantial. We're going to try something a little different on today's episode. Usually, we tell stories that we create from the interviews with our guests where, with the benefit of time to write and Joe's editing chops, I'm able to sound at least a little smarter and wittier than in real life. Instead, today, we're going to present the interviews themselves, or at least abbreviated versions. Two incredible conversations with two engaging, insightful women from different backgrounds, different lived experiences, and different roles to play as they help lead MSCI's DE&I journey. It's a journey that can be especially difficult for a global company trying to create a safe space in all its offices while accounting for the fact that history, cultural norms, and even laws are not the same everywhere the firm operates. You can't simply apply a distinctly Western set of solutions somewhere like Mumbai, India, for example, which happens to be where our first guest, Niti Gupta, lives and works. My name is Neeti Gupta. I joined MSCI about five months ago as an editor with the ESG Controversies team. So uh, that's my day job. And my background is I'm based in India. I have a master's in philosophy and a law degree. And I've been partially a lawyer, partially an editor. So here I am. And we're, we're glad to have you. So welcome uh, to the company and the program. I'm curious, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much I would love to ask you about, even from that answer alone, but today we're, we're here to talk about your role as one of the leaders of the Pride Employee Resource Group, or ERG, in the Mumbai office. What I am curious, though, in terms of the relationship for what you just answered in terms of your day job, um, as well as your background in general, how... That affects what you bring to your role and what you feel you're able to help accomplish in terms of the ERG's goals. Sure. Um, At the moment, uh, firstly, the fact that there is an ERG Pride, which is active now in Mumbai, it was part of the larger diversity group that was being managed. And... uh, the conversations were, we want to start this, but there was a hesitation in many of the people because pride, would anybody even be interested in it? Or, you know, how do we take the conversation forward? Uh, Fortunately for me, since uh, my background, I have had the experience of working with people who have uh, 
been part of the larger LGBT movement. I felt that this was something that we could initiate. And we had a session where uh, we had an external speaker come in and speak to us in the month of March, after which a group of us, about 13 people, volunteered and said that we would want to see this chapter take off and provide the space and initiate the conversation within the Mumbai office. My role as an editor in the controversies team is specifically important because, as you know, ESG controversies is a product which definitely looks at the governance and the social impact and the environmental impact of a lot of the things that companies do, uh, which I think is part of the factor which uh, blended in very well with what the pride targets are of bringing in inclusivity and seeing to it that a lot of the sustainability goals that we want to see promoted, we can now further the agenda with those. Was there a specific reason that it was, I don't want to say buried, but you know, mixed in with other groups that were going on before that it didn't just start out on its own? Uh, well, a lot of this is to do with the natural spontaneous hesitation, and this is a personal observation. Uh, in India, we do have something called uh, the Prevention of Sexual Harassment, which is a law and an act which is uh, targeted at workplace harassment of women in particular. So uh, I think somewhere it uh, works at cross purposes because, you know, a lot of men, even if they do want to have the conversation, it's... Uh, there is a little bit of hesitation that, you know, will it be considered harassment? Because, you know, would a woman consider it a harassment? So a lot of the younger employees sometimes feel hesitant about, you know, even wanting, even if they do want to have that space, they do not feel confident enough to start it. So And, and so against, against that backdrop, what are the sessions, activities, et cetera, that you're able to do in Mumbai, especially that would attract attention from, like you said, people who are either, let's say, men who are who are a part of the community, but because of these harassment laws that you're talking about might feel uncomfortable, let alone allies. Like, what, what do Pride events look like in the Mumbai office? Well, unfortunately, we've not really had any live events at the moment because, um, as you know, since April, uh, we saw the second wave of COVID uh, blow up. So most of the Mumbai office has been working from home as of last year. And that includes me. I'm yet to join the physical office space. But uh, we've started having conversations within the group and we've rolled it out. So when in June, there was a rollout of care packets that were distributed to all of the employees uh, for COVID. We were able to send in DEI set of stickers just to keep the June Pride Month uh, motive well in uh, center in uh, everybody's mind. We had a session uh, in the middle of the month where we got external speakers to come in one being a trans woman and one being the parent of a trans woman who came in and told us, shared their stories and their experiences of how the, the experience was. Understand that you've been hampered in terms of events, uh, what you've been able to do during COVID. But I, I wonder, with everyone working from home, where maybe not everybody feels safer, but, but some do, and it's, it's also not face-to-face, has it been almost a help? 
Partially yes and partially no, as you very rightly pointed out, uh, Adam. Uh, there is this hesitation because we do get reports that domestic violence has increased in this period. There are cases which are underreported of people not feeling the home to be a safe space. So some of that has hampered for people, especially who felt that the office was their go-to safe space where they could get rid of a lot of the toxic baggage that family can sometimes bring in. Uh, yes, that would be a hindrance. But as uh, as observed, you know, work has gone on and a lot of the conversations around work, what needs to be done has gone on. And similarly, uh, initiatives around pride have also been actively pursued, I think. Uh, so I don't see that as a hindrance, rather that has given people the impetus to come out, you know, maybe because it might have been that, you know, in a physical uh, space, people might not have been as vocal about some of these issues, which they have uh, managed to do. Uh, and we really look forward to having the group of volunteers uh, take up more charge and, you know, get more of those leadership roles and allow us to create the safe space for employees to come out, be it in the virtual environment or in the physical environment, because we don't know what the future of work is going to look like. In your opinion, how can companies, how should MSCI, for example, go about making the office that safe space that it needs to be? Uh, a lot of it is uh, thanks to uh, osmosis, I would say. Uh, we see what is happening in the other offices and we see uh, there are a lot of employees, you know, from uh, many of the global offices who have said that, oh, you know, I used to sit here, but then when I went to maybe the Manila office or when I went to the London office and when I went to the Monterey office and I saw how people interacted, you know, it just opened my eyes, you know, I mean, because those are things that I had never thought of. And, you know, why can't we have that? So um, as, uh, well, I'm sorry, you know, uh, somewhere the, the philosophy has to come in. So it's like, as Wittgenstein had said that, you know, it's like the, la the limits of my language define where my world starts and ends. So till the time that does not, that language does not come in, that exposure does not come in, uh, people will not understand that uh, what are the factors, what are the all of the hidden secret areas, you know, a hundred years ago, women voting was like, you know, what, what, what will women do with vote? But look how far we have come. So many, so many of these conversations could not have happened until a safer space was created, may, maybe through legislation, maybe through court rulings, or maybe through societal pressure, you know. So many of the things have recently started happening thanks purely to society pushing back and saying, no, this is unfair. You know, children saying, we will not do this. You know, this is not right. So it's like, and this is what organizations can help with in uh, interpersonal spaces, especially for communities such as LGBT, which are populated by people who are struggling, who have a constant struggle for acceptance, who are still confident enough to be able to come out. And if they have that little bit of a helping hand from organizational support, definitely, you know, these are people who can really do wonders and they, it's a privilege to be working with them. So, so that's, that's how we would want to take the Mumbai office forward. And, and this came up, we were talking yesterday that I heard you on an event, on a pride event, fantastic event all around. But one of the things you mentioned was that this is also important for companies, right? When people feel safe at work, 
I believe you mentioned they're more productive. There are studies around this. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Yes, uh, studies have been conducted and, you know, uh, I guess the most often cited one is the McKinsey one that came out in 2019 about productivity. But more than that, you know, I uh, even much, much before this, um, I can relate an incident if that is acceptable. About 15 years ago or, or 17 years ago, when many of these concepts were considered completely niche, I know of a couple of Indian organizations which took on people who were uh, in from the LGBTQ space. And uh, it was a very clear-cut company policy even far back then. And this is an Indian company that I, uh, I'm talking about that, you know, there will not be any harassment, there will not be any discrimination. So when you have those instances and those examples to live by, and at that time, uh, the laws were very, very strict about it. And the organizations were clear that no matter what the local law says, inside the office space, the office code of conduct will be followed and nobody can get away with any sort of harassment. And I thought that was a wonderful example of uh, advocacy because all of those employees, till the time they were working there, would be the the one stellar point attracting, you know, they would act as magnets for other people to feel that, you know, if you want to work in a safe space, this is the space where you should be working in. Absolutely. And as, as you mentioned, I'm glad you brought the focus more specifically to India because there are, of course, societal issues and those those exist around the world. But in some, some countries, such as India, there are legal hurdles as well, as you mentioned, where even just being a part of the community was illegal three years ago, I, I, I believe, was when uh, it was, quote unquote, decriminalized. Well, uh, decriminalization is a word which has been thrown around, but what it means is that the law governing this, which has been debated for ever since it came into existence about 150 years ago, has been the focus of attention for a lot of the community, uh, uh, which says, you know, this should be done away with. Uh, this is basically, uh, this was the buggery law, which is an oh, uh, infamous UK law, which was put in place in India. And it was one of the laws which was taken on once India gained independence and it existed. Now, this is normally there have not been too many convictions in this, but this is one of the laws that was used by people such as the police force and a lot of the other elements looking to generally throw their weight around and be the big bullies in the community to harass people. In India, most people are governed by uh, four sets of personal laws, which is the Hindu, the Muslim, the Christian, and the Parsi. Apart from the, having a unified code, which con uh, concerns all of the people who do not fall into these religious categories, but how are these laws to be changed and amended to make the space for LGBT community is something which is still an ongoing discussion. We don't know how long that will take, but uh, we uh, are hopeful that something should come of it. But till the time it does not, it's, it comes up to members of the civil society to take a stance and say that this community is facing persecution, but we need to step in as individuals, as allies, and say to it that they get all the support as human beings that they deserve. Earlier this month, there was a, a sweeping, I guess would be the word, order from the bench, from the courts, 
around LGBT rights on a case, I think, I believe that was about harassment in the beginning, but the judge went a lot further in terms of applying the law. Can, can you walk us through what happened there and how you think that might affect this push? That is something that has given us, uh, especially you know, in the Pride Month, that has given us a lot of confidence and a lot of hope. Uh, this happened in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu, in the Chennai bench. And uh, the parents of these two women approached the court saying that you know one of them was being influenced by the other and uh, she should be sent back home. And these two women wanted to live together as a couple. Um, and right now, uh, please uh, note that homosexual marriages are still not legally sanctioned. But now here the judge is someone who accepted in that you know in in the month of april that you know he had he did not really know how to write the judgment so he said he sought out counseling and he went to a psychologist and said i, I want to be counseled about you know what is the difference between a heterosexual marriage and the case of these two women who want to live together you know uh, is their relationship to each other likely to be considered the same as a heterosexual marriage would be and after counseling, he agreed, you know, he was uh, and he's uh, depicted it very beautifully in his judgment that, you know, my eyes have been open and I would want that, you know, more regulations and, you know, all of the academic educational institutions take it upon themselves to see to it that children are sensitized to the LGBTQ community. We want more offices and more organizations, the government but departments to take up this conversation and see to it that we can make better laws to safeguard uh, how the community is treated in the wider milieu. It seems like the this judge in particular is looking to the next generations in a sense as well. Is, is that what it's going to take? Is that how do you foster those kinds of conversations given all of the the history as well as the stigma that it still sounds like certainly exists throughout India? Well, uh, it's not just about India. It's like, you know, uh, and I, I can go on about this, but then, you know, it's like Greta Thunberg, you know, she's 15, 16. And the way she has come out and said things that, you know, a lot of us wanted to say, but were very hesitant to say is definitely shows that the children of today definitely are very clear they are very focused and they also have the exposure because uh, definitely about 30, 40 years ago, that exposure did not exist either from the societal level or from the communication channels or information channel levels that children today have access to. So they want answers. They're seeking answers. The parents are also slightly more open um, and you know, less bound by tradition. So we are hoping that things definitely do take a uh, turn for the betterment again uh, in schools and colleges because bullying harassment have been raised as issues uh, sexuality especially around uh, safety for children has been a focus area a uh, dignity of people has been a focus area which is going to translate into the next generation being much more aware and uh, about all of these issues than we are and, and that reminds me, it's rattling around in my head now, of a phrase that, that you said when we were talking earlier, in particular about younger LGBT 
colleagues uh, who may be a little less sure of themselves just generally, like people are younger, especially at work, especially about coming out. You said that you ask yourself and others the question, who will smile at you, which is just beautiful. But what does that mean? How do we put that into practice? Uh, it, this comes from uh, a, a very, very basic observation. You know, when you go into a new space, when you are lacking confidence, uh, people don't normally smile. And, you know, the entire corporate space is such that everybody's got challenges. Everybody's got their own individual pressures. And, you know, and uh, and there is this unconscious fear, which especially younger colleagues might have that, you know, uh, I have to appear very straight jacketed and serious and people might or might not accept me for who I am. And I think the smile is the best way to show acceptance and uh, that acceptance has to come from everywhere. And the e I think the easiest way to, for two human beings to build trust is a smile, which is still universally recognized as a non-offensive, non-threatening uh, mode of acknowledgement of each other's humanity, which is uh, why I said that, you know, the, the younger uh, LGBT, and it's not just the LGBT colleagues, it's all colleagues. It's You have to build acceptance and a smile is the easiest way to start the journey. Niti's point that someone's workplace, their office, that it may be their only safe space, that it made a big impression on me. It's, it's an idea that I will not soon shake and truly drives home just how important it is for companies to commit to creating such an environment. To learn how it's done, we spoke with T-Accounts, MSCI's new and first Chief Diversity Officer. We spoke about her approach to DE&I and the importance of it for firms across the globe. So, Tia, first off, welcome to the program. We're thrilled to have you here. You are the first Chief Diversity Officer at MSCI, and we're, we're thrilled to have you here more generally. Being the first means, basically, you're, you're creating what this position is. What about that appealed to you when you were considering taking the job? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. Uh, I am the first Chief Diversity Officer at MSCI, and... Uh, I have to say, I initially was just attracted to the company, and then I started thinking about the impact that would mean being the first and being able to craft something, and that was exciting. Uh, the company for me, though, was really about alignment with the values, and I won't lie, um, once I was really exposed to uh, our CEO and our CHRO, I just thought, these, these guys have a lot of vision, they've got passion. And I was just beyond excited to, to be invited to join. Everybody is all in on diversity, and that's really important. But when you're the first, yeah, there's a lot of um, opportunity that comes with being able to shape something and a unique opportunity to lead throughout the company and even beyond, just given our unique positioning you know, in the markets. There's a lot of things that come into the ideal mix of making this all work. MSCI is very settled and, and sorted on its view of itself as a client-centric organization where diversity is another tool that helps us bring the best of ourselves to our clients. So it's all in the service of, you know, the, the end client 
at the same time, you know, being an organization that is really on the leading edge of a lot of the ESG considerations, it is imperative that we view our lens on the workforce as something that is not just important and the right thing to do, but, you know, actually, you know, business critical and business essential. So I think about the philosophy as, you know, one where we value our people. We know that for them to bring their full selves to work means that we're going to get um, a lot of innovation and a dynamism and a sort of ownership that we wouldn't get if people didn't feel um, safe or that they belonged at the company. And that and that's come up a lot around these conversations, the idea that, of course, or maybe I shouldn't say of course because it's taken a long time, it is the right thing to do, but it's also, it's the right thing to do for the business. There's a strong business case that's been proven time and again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's the, the key um, point for all businesses that understand the value of diversity is you're not tolerating people. You're celebrating the difference that really helps you get a different outcome, a more um, innovative solution. You know, different people solve problems differently. Um, it actually helps you understand your clients better because your clients are not homogeneous uh, or in their thinking or in their makeup. So it's just it's just a win-win you know, way to understand how to build your business and really move your business forward. And let's let's just back up a little bit. I'd uh, love to hear a little bit more about your career path, how you got to this point, and specifically how it's affected the approach, everything we've been talking about so far. So I came to where I am in my career, which is about 25 years into financial services, through the legal lens. So I was a lawyer. I was a trained lawyer. I was a capital market specialist, Latin America, traveled all around uh, Latin America and the Spanish-speaking world, and um, didn't see anybody like me. I was at a very uh, large law firm that um, just didn't really have a lot of diversity, not ethnic diversity, I should be clear about that. And then when I moved into investment banking, it was sort of the same story where, you know, really doing great work, convinced that my my skills and my my smarts and everything about what I was bringing in terms of accountability to myself was going to make a difference. And it did. I won't lie. It did. It was it was it was the way of the world to be hardworking. You know, we all worked um, more hours than you could possibly squeeze into a day. But I did notice along the way there wasn't a lot of gender diversity. There wasn't a lot of ethnic diversity. And I think I was just really too busy trying to make an impact uh, to, to, to make too much noise about it. I also thought that we would evolve. I thought that the industry would evolve and that it would just be something that was a bit of a, you know, oh, back in the day, you know, there weren't a lot of women on the trading floor. Fast forward, you know, 20 plus years, and I noticed that it hadn't really changed. It certainly hadn't changed in a way that I would have expected uh, back when I was, you know, a young early 20s starting out in this business, um, thinking that, you know, time would only make it better and make it make it more obvious that, you know, women had a lot to contribute, that ethnic minorities had a lot to contribute. Um, but it hadn't changed very much. And I think that really does inform the way I look at diversity, it's 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 a question of intentionality. So if we're going to have a different result, we absolutely have to do something different. We have to be intentional about it and we have to do it on purpose. Inertia doesn't work. It won't just happen uh, on its own. Um, so I think about it in that way. And I think my diversity practice 
you know, in terms of really having a over-indexing for accountability and personal accountability, but also looking at it from the management lens and saying, you know, we need to learn to see talent um, more broadly. We need to take a broader lens of what talent looks like. We need to understand that we um, are going to see potential um, sometimes and not the finished article. And we need to be okay with that, right? We need to understand that voices around the table, you know, matter. It matters to bring diverse voices to the table. So I think it really, I actually look at my life and sort of being, you know, a black woman um, and everything that meant, you know, making my way through Latin America, through the time that I was living in Asia, through the 16 years I've been um, living in EMEA. And it really does inform how I, how I view the world. There's, there's a lot there, but I'm, I'm curious, especially about your point about that it doesn't just happen especially because over the last year, it feels like there's been a bit more momentum, at least people paying more attention, and at least what you hope is a little bit more than lip service. I think, Adam, I mean, certainly the twin disasters of COVID and, you know, the the very public viewing of the murder of George Floyd uh, propelled us to where we are uh, today. There was a momentum already underway, which I think everyone being at home just magnified. And, and and now we are where we've spent a lot of 2020, you know, really investigating and, and challenging ourselves to think about why is the world the way it is? You know, why were um, some of the black and brown communities the most heavily impacted uh, by COVID? You know, wh- why do we um, have a situation where we've got in certain communities, you know, over-policing? You know, why do we have, especially as of late, you know, anti-Asian uh, sentiment? And so we just started to, I think as a, as a global community, we started to think hard about things that we were taking for granted and coming to a place where we now, you know, realize, you know, opportunities aren't equally distributed. Did a lot of learning. I know a lot of people and companies spent time thinking about racial justice and and, and thinking about social justice and thinking about, you know, how is it that the world is shaped the way it is with with respect to, you know, all sorts of issues um, that that came out of that that period of, of learning. And I actually think, you know, 2021, where we are now is a direct result of the journey that we took in 2020 and companies that that really didn't take advantage of that moment um, of learning. Hopefully everyone is still on the learning journey, but but people that sort of missed that, I think they'll be poorer because of it. What 2020 was, was it was a chance to, to wake up and a chance to realize that, you know, we need to act with urgency and we need to um, really address some of these issues that have been festering for too long. And given that this is the episode celebration of Pride Month, how do we take all of that in terms of looking at the impact on the LGBTQ community? So again, whenever we look at diversity and inclusion, we have to take a broad lens, right? There are so many um, components of that story that um, the LGBTQ plus community is one where growing voices are helping companies and individuals understand those challenges. We know that the rights and protections of the LGBTQ plus community are different uh, depending on where you are in, in the world. And the global view and the global attention on fairness and equality, you know, extends to 
to that community as well as to the other uh, communities that we were maybe had more in the frame in 2020 because of this um, this concept of intersectionality that you can be in more than one uh, diversity uh, bucket, if you will, at a time because of the fact that attention on all matters of, of, of inequality uh, will, will shine a light and help us with, um, you know, start to think about how um, other communities that are non-majority communities are experiencing uh, their day-to-day. -day. So I absolutely think that the global attention um, on these, uh, on social injustice in general will support you know, further assessment of what can be done differently uh, to support the LGBTQ plus community. And at a minimum, understand that it's not, we're not there yet. We're certainly not there in many parts of Europe. Uh, we're not there in all over the, the US. We're, we're not there in um, parts of APAC. Uh, we're really far from being there in certain parts of the world. And, and what I mean by there is a place where an LGBTQ plus person can feel that they are fully accepted and fully celebrated. But I really, I really believe that this moment of us examining um, our systems and examining the way we um, think about our workforce, not just for MSCI, but for the, you know, for the for the broader finance community, is is a way to ensure that we're looking at how this is working for for everyone um, who's outside of the the majority. You mentioned living in, in Asia, in Latin America. We were talking before we started taping that uh, you have three passports in the UK, the US, and Spain. So you are well-traveled, for sure, um, beyond traveled. You've lived in these places. So I'm curious from your take, how does this work? How do you manage this as a global company? The way I think about DE&I is it's a global commitment. So we have a kind of baseline that as a company, we expect um, certain behaviors and we're very clear on what those are. And we expect people to be respectful and, and have a certain common understanding of what we're, what we're going for. But that said, it's a cultural question, right? So diversity helps you uh, en enrich your culture and having a good sense of, of DE&I is, is the way that you get to a richer culture. And that is, as any other cultural aspect, it's a very local question. So I may have, you know, for example, a certain set of norms that apply worldwide, but when I go into a country where it's, um, you know, politically unpopular and, and even dangerous uh, to be from the LGBTQ plus community, like that, that matters. That matters to me as a chief diversity officer that I'm aware of that that I do something different uh, in that community to make sure that my employees feel safe, that I um, have appropriate messaging and open channels of communication so that I can hear from people and understand how they're feeling in their day-to-day. -day. You know, we can't control what happens to um, our employees when they leave our building, right? When they walk outside of MSCI's halls and our, and our walls, you know, they could be in a situation where um, there's danger and just being who they are. Um, it's super important to me that we have a local uh, support system. We obviously have global support, but that we have people on the ground who understand that that is a reality in that in that um, that country or in that city, um, and that we have the appropriate channels and support for our employees. And we're not tone deaf to that because you know we're thinking that well, it's not illegal in America, so you know surely there's no problem. Like we we need to be 
smarter than that. And, and we are smarter than that. So, so you're almost speaking of regardless of what's going on outside, obviously we need to be sensitive to that, as you mentioned, but perhaps work could be unfortunately the only one of the only safe places that that people may have exactly and so it needs to really be safe right that's it just heightens the need to make sure that we've created that sense of belonging and that we've got those challenges i mentioned for communication and for support uh, because it could be the only safe place that the employee has in that particular jurisdiction so given all the efforts and the steps that you're talking about taking, let's let's look forward. We are a company all about data, as you know. How how do you measure success? What does that look like to you? So success from a diversity, equality, and inclusion perspective is measured in many in many ways. I think one of the more important measures that people um, should really not underestimate or under undervalue is the sense of, of belonging that I mentioned before and, 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 and something that helps you understand how you're doing on that inclusion question. Um, we're all accustomed to thinking about diversity, meaning, you know, bring more uh, difference to the table. So we think about it, the data point, you know, the numbers and how, how many of each do you have and how, you know, how are you measuring the, um, the population growth in a certain segment. And that is important. That's really important. But ultimately, um, in order to really bring the benefits that a good uh, diversity, equality, and inclusion uh, program should bring and that a, and that a company's culture uh, should be fostering is how many of the members of diverse populations are, are feeling um, safe and welcome at the company and really actually able to, to add value. I think measuring success is at least in, in part of, of that, I think it is, you know, the, the three B's, belonging, bringing your full self to work and being comfortable uh, being out at work if you're from the LGBTQ plus community. And I think really until you've got a, a feel for those three things, um, you don't know if you're having having success, really. I think those are really important. What's the role of ERGs or employee resource groups in driving toward that success? It feels like they've become much more important as well over the last couple of years, though they've been around. They are starting to look a lot more like unions where, you know, you have uh, someone who is really a spokesperson uh, for the for the group. But one thing I would say that I really, really like about the ERGs and how they can help a company's culture really improve is um, if you have a good um, open dialogue with your ERGs, you really do have the ability to see around corners. You really do see um, issues before they turn into, you know, massive problems to manage because it's that day-to-day, you know, conversation with uh, with with the employee base that you're not going to be in when you're in uh, in management. That is helpful to have uh, someone who's there tell you what you what you don't know, what you need to know. Also, it, it's a very um, two-way street. So I think that the ERG leadership team um, also do informally or formally uh, reverse mentoring, and they and they teach us. Uh, what what we need to know that we might be missing, but we also um, give to them a sense of of purpose and a way to really proactively drive the culture. Wonderful. Thank you again, Tia. Really interesting. And again, I know I've said it a number of times, but welcome. 
Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Nice to talk to you. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Tia and Niti and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, we'll be back with our familiar format and our quarterly factors check-in with Atendra Varsani, along with iShares Robert Hum and Patrick Moranek, Head of International Equities for the State of Michigan. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.